This morning we want to talk about life's greatest problem. What is your greatest problem? If you were to think of a list of your great problems, what is troubling your life? I think of problems with money, relationships, or our health. Maybe you have a chronic pain or something having to do with your kids or your job. Maybe there's some more of an inner issue. There's bitterness about your past, that you have some crippling fears about your future. Maybe you're dealing with addiction or depression or, or heartbreak. The list, of course, can go on. And then we, and we start to think about not just our own problems, but the problems of humanity in general. What are humanity's great problems? And boy, just turn on the news or open up your Apple News or Google News feed and you see issues with political unrest and poverty continues and disease and natural disasters. And then there's all of these horrible, you know, moral wrongs that we see happening all over. And we see that human trafficking continues and all kinds of things like that that are just awful to think about. All of these all of the individual problems you face, all of the, the big human problems are real. They are real issues, but they are not the root issue. There is an issue. There is a problem that all of these come from. That's what we want to talk about this morning. We have a history of looking at our problems and misdiagnosing our condition and treating only the symptoms. We have a tendency to say, well, yes, I have this cough. That's what I'm going to treat and not look to, wait a minute, I have lung cancer. The human condition is much the same way. We have a chronic condition that we might call the human condition. Ever since the fall of humanity, there is this problem that keeps showing up in each person's life over and over again. Have you ever noticed whenever somebody talks about medical terminology, it's always these big words that you have no idea. You just start to, Michael can start talking about the drugs that he's peddling out to people as a pharmacist and and I have no idea what he uses he doesn't even use the brand names he just uses these big big words right you know you think about all of these terms and it's it's distant from you it seems abstract until you're sitting across from the doctor and they say this is your problem this is something that you're going to face for the next several years of your life. And all of a sudden, that big word takes on new meaning. It's not so abstract, not so far away. And we can do that with religious terminology too. Some words start to feel like church words that just you, you would never use very often. And we're going to talk about some of those words today. We're going to talk about the words sin, and iniquity, and transgression. You probably didn't say to your kids this morning, 
I can't believe you left cereal all over. Your iniquity is too much to bear. But iniquity is a real issue. And this is really at the heart of everything we're trying to talk about. The, these three words are pulled together, these three Hebrew words, in this explanation at the heart of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. There are these three Hebrew words as God is describing what is going to happen on the holiest day of the year, the Day of Atonement, whenever Aaron, the high priest, is going to take a goat and put his hand on its head, and he's going to confess the sins of the people over it, and then he's going to send it out into the wilderness carrying the sins and the iniquities and the transgressions. We're going to focus in on these words. You know, have you ever heard this, that the Inuit language or that, you know, the language of Eskimos that were in indigenous, that are indigenous up in Alaska, have tons of different words for snow. I know one word for snow, but they're like, there's so many different kinds of snow. There's the slushy kind and there's the icy kind and there's all these things. Read that there are some 40 different words in the Hebrew language for sin. This is something that highlights to us the importance of this concept. There are different truths that we can glean from the Holy Spirit's choice of each of these words. And we want to understand what this is. And this is the big idea of this lesson. I'm going to give it to you right up front. Sin might seem like a dry, out-of-touch religious concept. Maybe it's so hard to see past this loaded word to its presence and effect in your real life, in every real life. But this dysfunction, this moral failure, this twisting of good things is the sole sickness that alienates us from ourselves, from others, and from God. So before we get too far into theological terminology and doctrine, I ask you to think about your own sin. Consider the last time that you hurt someone by mistreating them. Consider the last time that any kind of dishonesty appeared in your life. The last time that maybe you thought of someone of the opposite sex as an object for your pleasure, and you just looked at them and didn't see the, the image-bearing character that God created in them. Think of whatever sin. Think of, you know what sin is. Think of your sin. Think of its effect. Think of its effect when it comes between a husband and wife, when it shows up between a parent and a child, when it shows up between a brother and a sister, when it shows up between you and God, when it shows up and clouds and pollutes your thinking. The first word we want to focus on is about the chronic failure that happens every time we sin. This word 
this Hebrew word for sin in this text in, in Leviticus 16 talks about missing. Now, if I were to, as has often happened, if I were to take a hammer and just miss the nail and slam down on this piece of wood that's beautiful and that I'm, you know, this finished piece of wood, I missed the whole point of swinging that hammer. The whole goal of it was to strike, and I just missed. That's actually literally what sin means. This word, hata, the meaning of this term, missing the mark, is clarified by its non-theological use regarding slingers hitting a target. The term also, of course, denotes being at fault, failure to perform a duty, or to be lacking. Used in a moral ethical sense, failure in meeting the demands of a law or statute, but it can also signify falling short of the expectations inherent in certain relationships. You, you missed the mark with your friend. You failed to meet the basic part of what it means to be a friend, and certainly in the sense of our relationship with God. Failure to live in the way we should. Here's a literal use of this word. Judges 20, verse 18 says, Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And not, literally, we would normally translate this, not sin. Not miss that hair. Or slightly more metaphorical in Proverbs Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way, sins his way, misses his way. One of the first uses of this word is back in Genesis 39, where we see its real moral meaning. When we're thinking of, of Joseph here in the house of Potiphar, says, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, Potiphar's wife, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin and miss the mark against God? What, why did they choose this word about missing the mark? The Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology says, In the biblical world, sin is, from its first appearance, tragic and mysterious. It is tragic because it represents a fall from the high original status of humankind. Created in God's image, Adam and Eve are good but immature, fine but breakable, like glass dishes. They are without flaw, yet capable of marring themselves. This has to do with wrongness. Sin is about completely missing your purpose for existing. What a thing to miss. It's like that you had one job. You had one job. Glorify God. Do the right. And instead you do the wrong. That is sin, the tragic error. missing. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. That is the missing that we're doing. The second word here describes a fractured harmony. 
I took this hammer and I took this beautiful candle and I smashed it, what would happen? Be a big mess. I'd probably get fired. We'd have a big problem. And there'd be shards of glass all over. You ever do this thing where maybe you're in the kitchen and you bump a glass or a, a breakable dish and it's like everything slows down. And before you even hear the sound, you can just feel it. And you're trying to grab it. And then you hear it. And when you say, okay, kids, stay out of the kitchen. Make sure you have shoes on. Anybody that's coming in here, I'm going to start sweeping. I'm going as far out as I can to make sure I've got all the little tiny bits because what was once whole has now broken into a million tiny pieces. And that is us when we sin. Sin is a shattering. That's the meaning of this word, transgression. It is a breaking, a tearing of what was once one. The oneness we had with God, shattered. The oneness we had with each other, shattered. The oneness and integrity within ourselves, broken into little pieces like our soul is torn apart. You have now put yourself in conflict with yourself. And what you know is right, and what you know is whole, and what you know is healthy, and what you know is good. This word, Peshaw, which sounds like a valley girl like scoffing at something to me. Peshaw. Uh, <laughs> Peshaw means, uh, um, it says, while the meaning rebellion is not a myth or transgression, the term has to do with breach breach of law and of brotherhood. Whoever commits Peshaw does not merely rebel or protest against Yahweh, but breaks with him, takes away what is his, robs and bezels, misappropriates it. Actions of Peshaw rupture solidarity and shatter harmony. Um, if that, that word we just looked at for sin is all about failure, especially the failure of achieving or reaching a goal. Shah is about breaching a relationship. It's a break. It's a break. You've probably experienced the break of a relationship. And all of these are relationships. A relationship with God. That distance. That alienation. The relationship with yourself relationship with others. Sin is what fragments us. Sin is what alienates us. And then this third world, this third word describes crookedness, crooked heart disease. Let me use this metaphor again of the, of the nail. So my dad was a, a, a carpenter by trade and he, for years, he was a framer. And he always had this giant hammer, not like this one, that was probably too big for him. And he could take it and just wham, and the whole nail goes in. But sometimes I would hit it, hit it on the side, and what happens? It gets bent. It gets bent. And you know what? 
it is really hard to straighten out a bent nail because the more you hit it, the more bent it gets. So what do you do? You just pull it out and throw it away and start over, right? This word describes how we are bent. Iniquity. Avon is the, the Hebrew word, and it describes crookedness, perversity, and iniquity. The informing image is of a bent, twisted, or crimped item laid alongside a standard straight edge. It entails consequences such as guilt and punishment. Implicit in Avon is the agent's awareness of the culpability of his action. Bone talks about warping. God gave us this good world. Had so many good things right in the beginning. And in the first three chapters of the, of the Bible, we see a, a perverting, a twisting, a ruining, a marring of all of these good things. We see, see this um, problem of you know, even nature itself turning us against it. People, the husband and wife, this beautiful thing called marriage, they turn against each other. The relationship with God. I mean, it keeps going on through chapter 11 and, and really through the Bible. We see this warping of good things. We can warp any good thing. Feels like food. Sex. Our own purity and innocence, the, the purity of our mind and our thinking that we had once can become warped and twisted. This is a soul sickness. It is a, it's like my, my great grandma and my grandma, and then to a certain extent, my dad and, and my sisters, um, have arthritis really bad. And, and so my great-grandma just slowly bent and, and shrunk and got smaller because of, she wasn't a big lady to begin with, but she kept getting smaller because of this arthritis. That's what is happening to our soul. I mean, when you look at some people and their actions or what they say, or even like the bumper stickers on their car, and you think, how could a person say that? Where did the person that's inside that car go? How could they do that? They are shrinking because of sin. And it has happened in some way to all of us. This breaking, this warping. So ugly and so awful and so tragic. What sin is and what sin does. Far from this distant idea like, you know, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, straying off of this list of, of commandments. No, sin is what destroys us. God wants us to be whole and healthy and sound and alive and harmonious with each other and with him and with ourselves. So then what does sin do? Well, sin becomes to you, to me, a burden that we carry. We bear our iniquities. It's this load that we drag around with us. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt how heavy 
the guilt of your sin, the choice of your sin, the preponderance, the, the power and, and urge to keep sinning. I mean, it really, it, it, is, it is described in this early picture of sin in Genesis 4 verse 7 as a predator. Remember that with Cain? God says to Cain, you know, sin is crouching at their door and it wants to devour you. But you can choose the good thing. Sin is like this beast stalking us. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. It's, a, it's obviously sin is not a real person or personality, but it feels that way sometimes. My past bad choices, my present bad choice, is it going to lead to future bad choice? It can be a slaver. And Paul talks about sin as this feudal lord that is ruling over this fiefdom of of us, that we have been sold into slavery because the thing we want to do, we don't do. Instead, we are the slaves, he says, of the one we obey. If we're obeying sin as it is so easy to do, you are like someone who doesn't own themselves. Doesn't own themselves. Just does what you don't want to do. And it's like the momentum of those bad choices and the, the power of those bad choices and the forbiddenness of those bad choices and the allure of them all just become so strong that you find yourself hating yourself for what you're doing in the act of doing it. What an awful thing. What an awful thing. And it becomes ultimately a killer because the essence of sin is death. And that is its natural consequence. Death as in separation, all of these separations, separation from God, and death as in eternal destruction. But wait, there is good news. I wasn't going to stop the lesson and say, and next time we'll talk about the happy ending. There is good news. The gospel is the Lord's, if this is our great problem, the gospel is the Lord's great declaration. Jesus is king, and he has come to conquer all that opposes him, to conquer sin, to conquer death, to conquer the evil powers in the heavenly places that oppose us and want to suck us into this awfulness. Jesus has come, and his kingdom is here, already breaking into the world, and someday it will fully take over everything. Jesus Christ changes the human condition. Christ brings new creation and atonement, and he reconciles all. This is a crazy idea. Uh, Ephesians 1 and verse 10, Colossians 1, talk about that Jesus isn't just reconciling us with God whenever we come to him. It says that ultimately he is reconciling this is a whole other sermon, but he is reconciling all things to himself. He's bringing all things together into oneness. Everything it says in this universe and beyond this universe. In heaven and on earth, in the heavenly places, everything will ultimately be one. No more fracturing. No more brokenness. All people 
all, uh, all that is in the new heavens and new earth will be one, will be united, will be peace and wholeness. And anything that isn't will be cast out. There's a powerful idea. This, this newness that he makes in us. You know, he didn't, he didn't say, okay, I'm going to unbend you. You'll still have a few knots in you, but no. He says, okay, you're a new nail. And you are straight. <laughs> you are right. You are whole. He makes you new. A, a new person with, with no sin, no wrongness, the cleansing. This idea of cleansing in 1 John 1, 7 is like not just forgiving, but erasing. Forgiveness is a relational idea. We need that. We need God, who we have sinned against, to forgive us, to say, it's okay. It's okay now because of Jesus. I forgive you. We are okay. We are okay. Because of Christ's sacrifice and your repentance and faith. But he also says, it is gone now. I have cleansed it. And he says, you are now right. What In your wrongness, that you had to sit in your wrongness and just be wrong all the time. He said, no. You are now declared right. That's what the word justified that our Roman study keeps bringing up means. It means declared right. Through Jesus Christ. Christ rescues us from the ranks of the crooked. Save yourself, Peter said, from this crooked and perverse generation. And so God makes a people who can stand straight and behold and have healing. Turn to me. If you would have eyes to hear and ears to, eyes to see and ears to hear and turn to me, I would heal you. I would heal you. No more crooked, but made alive. Like what he did for lame men and, and blind men and deaf men and people who were dead even. Physically healing them, he does for us in that truest and most desperate need of our souls. Christ carries our burden. The picture in Isaiah 53 so beautifully is Jesus taking upon himself and bearing our burden, bearing the weight of our guilt as he died for us on the cross. And Jesus slays the power of evil. It's displayed as Satan is, is a dragon in <laughs> Revelation 12, but he has slain sin. He has slain death. 1 Corinthians 15 says, every enemy will be destroyed. The last enemy to be destroyed will be death. And when all of that is done, he will have conquered every dark thing that exists and brought us freedom. Those who believe in the Son are free indeed, free from the power, the enslaving power of sin. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 17. 
And so not only will we be free, but we will live eternally because where he is, there is life. There's no sin to destroy. Sin, death had no power on its own. Death came in through sin. And with sin gone, death will be no more. We will live forever with our Lord. That's the power of Jesus Christ. You have to know the bad news before the good news means anything. You know, I think that's where some people sort of miss the power of the gospel is because they don't know what the real problem is. You have to get the problem. You have to get that, that our sin has, is like a grand canyon between, right in the middle of our soul, between us and God. And you can't put a denim knee patch on it and try to say it's okay. Only Jesus could heal this rend, this, this tear. Only Jesus can make us whole and bring us life forevermore. So Jesus has brought the victory and those who follow Jesus stand with him in his victory. That's how that works. When we are in Christ, then whatever Christ brings, we receive. Jesus died and we're in Christ. And so we die to ourselves. Jesus rose. And so in Christ, the power of his resurrection lives in us. We died to ourselves in our baptism. We raise to new life and someday we will, that resurrection power already at work in us, in our inner life, will make our bodies and everything else new. 